Well, I just uh, want to say that I am blessed and encouraged by this congregation, to be a part of this congregation, and uh, by, by all of your faithfulness. Amen? We are a church that uh, is uh, active and engaged. Amen? And uh, we try hard to be a bulwark. This, this church is a bulwark against much of the evil going on in the city, in this state, and in this country, and it's desperately, desperately needed. Amen? And uh, we don't profess to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Matt and I are both deeply flawed men, and so we don't want to put any errors of, or pretenses of self-righteousness. We are saved by the grace of God and wholly dependent on His mercy and His goodness to us. Amen? Uh, because of His goodness, because of His righteousness, amen, we want to be faithful. Amen? And we are willing to sacrifice all for Him. Amen? And so this morning, I just want to give a brief exhortation to you um, on the topic of having no fear. And so what I want to discuss are two antidotes to fear. Two antidotes to fear. I think there is a great deal of fear that is gripping the hearts of many uh, for a variety of reasons, not least of which being the incredible corruption we see going on in the nation with our government and with the powers that be, with the media, the lies, the propaganda, the distortion of reality, the mass deception and delusions that are believed by so many people, and the increasing sin and ungodliness that spreads in our nation. And so many are worried, many are anxious, many are concerned, many are fearful. And so I'm going to give two antidotes to what I believe the scripture recommends to us that are antidotes against fear, one being biblical, biblical love and the other being biblical faith. And uh, so I want to expound upon those a little bit. Before I get to those, I just want to give a, a little summary of where I think our nation is and kind of just share my heart with you about what I think is we're setting in the new year, 2021, reflecting on the chaos of 2020. And here we are only, what, 17 days into 2021, and it looks like we're already geared up to be significantly more crazy than what 2020 was. How many of you have seen that meme of the guy with the bullhorns, you know, or the, with, the, with the hat on and he's standing in the, <laughs> where Speaker Pelosi usually stands, you know, and it's like, uh, you thought 2020 was crazy, you know, we're only six days into 2021 and here's this guy standing, you know, so yeah, we're, uh, we're in for some crazy times. So um, it's good to get a few laughs in because uh, these are sobering times, Amen. How many of you believe that we are on the verge of civil war? Raise your hand if you think that we're on the verge of a civil war, okay? Good number of people. How many of you think that um, Trump is going to do something dramatic here this week that is going to save the republic, okay? Gary's, oh, no. <laughs> we got a couple people that are holding out hope, okay? A couple people that are holding out hope. Well, I'm not optimistic, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've gotten about 475 messages, you know, about, you know, this is the plan. Just wait. Trump is about to execute. Generals are swarming, you know. Um, so, Gary and Mark and I, I uh, appreciate your, your faith and <laughs> not giving up hope in that this week, but, but I'm skeptical. Um, I think we are staring down the barrel of a Biden administration that is going to be unbelievably hostile to everything we hold dear in this country. Uh, the Marxists in our nation have moved from, from Marx to Stalin. Uh, they are no longer concerned about just trying to uh, put up the pretenses of being just and equitable. They're not worried about the pretenses or any fear of, of hypocrisy or being found out. They are just blatantly, blatantly lying to the American people on a daily basis, shoving it in our faces. 
Right? I mean, the, the hypocrisy with the storming of the Capitol and the great insurrection at the Capitol, you know, as we've just witnessed months and months of, of far worse violence, even just this month, by radical leftists. And so the media narrative is unbelievably hypocritical, dishonest, deceptive. Now we have governors, mayors in liberal states are saying, you know what, I think we ought to probably open up our economy. We can't just lock these businesses down for good now that we're, they're expecting a Biden administration, right? Cuomo. In New York, uh, what's the lady's name in Chicago? Her name is eluding me, Lightfoot, or you know. So, so the, the rank hypocrisy after destroying thousands of businesses, locking down our economy, all a ploy to win an election, to gain political power. What evil! What tremendous evil we are dealing with. And so, here is the sobering reality we need we need to come to: is that uh, we are dealing with an evil that is beyond beyond just uh, a political remedy. If you think we're going to fix this politically, I think you are unbelievably naive. There's not a political solution to what we see going on in Washington, D.C. And nothing was, has made more, that more crystallized to me than what I saw when I was in D.C. at the Capitol on the 6th. And uh, being in that city, understanding what's going on in that city, understanding the decades of rank lawlessness that have been perpetrated in that city and the intensification of that lawlessness, that they are indeed above the law. It doesn't matter who we elect and who we send to Washington, D.C. anymore. Now, one who's been involved in, in politics and campaign work and knocking on doors for over 20 years, and I'll tell you, there is no political solution to Washington, D.C.'s problems. And so that is a sad and a sobering thought. Our founding fathers gave us the four Boxes. Amen. Everybody understand the four boxes they gave us. One was the jury box, and that has largely been stripped from us long ago. Juries are not instructed in their right and of uh, jury nullification. Most juries have no idea that it's not just uh, the defendant whose guilt or innocence is on trial, but the legitimacy of the very law that's being used to prosecute them. And juries are supposed to have the constitutional right of jury nullification to say, you know what, this is a bad law. Whoever passed this law didn't do a good thing, and we're nullifying this law. And this person, yes, they violated this law, but we're not going to find them guilty of a crime. And juries, most juries have no idea that that's even a a right they possess. So the jury box has long since been stripped from the American people. And then they gave us the soapbox. That's what this is, right? We still have a soapbox to a certain extent where we can preach, and we must utilize it. You have a voice. You can use it. I've preached on the streets uh, all over this country for over 20 years, and we have utilized the soapbox, the ability we have to speak freely, which is not something we should take lightly, that we still have this freedom, we still have this liberty to speak. And the First Amendment enshrines that, and that is a a great thing. And our fathers gave that to us. But what we are, of course, seeing right now with, whether you want to call it big tech or the technological, the technocracy that is starting to rule our world, is that we are seeing a gross silencing of our First Amendment rights. We are seeing the very sitting president of the United States deplatformed from major, major um, social media platforms. And so they are clamping down on our First Amendment rights. And many, many people are beginning to feel that their voice is being taken from them. Then we have the ballot box. And we all vote. We get an opportunity to get involved in political work. We get an opportunity. Many of you, anybody here, can run for political office. Some of you have. And we have an opportunity to get involved in our government to exercise our liberties in this way, and, uh, and to utilize the ballot box. In this last year, what did we see happen to our precious ballot box? 
We saw a horrifically rigged election, and anybody that doesn't think this election was rigged, that there was massive voter fraud and great evil done in this election, is foolish, absolutely foolish. There is no question, no question. And it was done in plain view of the American people, and there's been nothing done to rectify that situation. Our cowardly Republicans have capitulated, as they always do, probably because most of them are compromised and complicit in the evil. And so many Americans are feeling that the ballot box is being stripped from them, that no longer do they have an opportunity to make a meaningful difference with their vote. And so I'll tell you, when we get to a place where we no longer have the ability to speak freely and have our voice be heard, and we no longer have the ability to trust in the integrity of our elections and influence our governmental processes democratically, what does that leave us? It leaves us at the ammo box. It leaves us with our weapons and our strength of heart to fight tyranny. That's what it leaves us with. And millions of Americans are at the place where they feel backed into a corner and that that is where we are right now. And I cannot say they're wrong. As somebody, like I said, who has been preaching on the streets and who has been actively involved in campaign work, knocking doors, tirelessly working the streets, speaking in city halls and legislative halls around the country, I can tell you I've never been more discouraged in seeing uh, a solution to the problems we see about us through those vehicles. And so there's a reason why we have 25,000 plus soldiers right now in Washington, D.C. There's a reason why today there are thousands of law enforcement officers on call and National Guard units on call in, in Madison in anticipation of some great event there. Why? Because they know, the powers that be know the evil that they've done. They know that we know the evil that they've done. And they know that they are tightening the noose around our necks. And they know that millions of us are armed, we're angry, and we're reaching a point where we're not going to take it any longer. And they have pushed us to this. And that is a sober reality. Civil war is not going to be a pretty thing. It's going to be ugly. It's not going to be glorious. It's going to be nasty, brutal, violent, bloody. And it may be the very means that God uses to bring a great humbling to his people. It may be a, a form of his purifying judgment on the land, of which we will all suffer from. We will all long for a day if civil war breaks out where we can sit quietly, drive down to the local Starbucks or the coffee shop and have a, sorry, not Starbucks, <laughs> fiddleheads. Go down to the local coffee shop, you know, and relax in peace and sip coffee with your wife. You know, we'll, we'll long for that day if civil war strikes in our nation. There will be a long, bloody time, but it may be a necessary time. And I pray we can avert that. I pray that we still can work and labor. And one thing that we're going to really focus our efforts on is going to be working at the county level and really digging in and, and dialing down tangible plans, workable plans that everybody can get involved in and can be replicated around the country to really work to, I don't want to say take over, because that's an insurgency, a violent insurgency, so not to take over our counties, uh, but to establish justice, to see that we are working properly within our counties, using the proper channels we still have to, to, uh, to 
utilize the power that exists there, the lawful authority that exists there to push back against this corruption from state and federal governments. So, if you don't think we've lost the culture war, you just need to turn on a television. Amen? And after you've turned the television off, I would encourage you, after you've turned the television on, I would encourage you to very swiftly turn it back off. <laughs> Amen? And so let me just end by saying this was much more I, w- I could say along these lines as far as all that's happened. Matt Sermon last week did an excellent job in laying out a lot of things, and there's just so much more that could be said upon this. You know, I've asked some of my conservative Republican friends who are very involved in politics and still hope for a good political solution. I asked them, what big political policy victories are you anticipating this year? Tell me one big policy victory you expect to achieve this year. In fact, tell me one big policy victory, victory we achieved last year or the year before. You know what? Uh, we have to scratch our heads a bit. Now, Trump's done some good things at the federal level. He's done more than I thought he would accomplish. But it's a drop in the bucket relative to the problems we see in D.C. And, of course, what we see is that they went to great lengths to push the nuclear button to get him out of office. So, <clears throat> prepare yourselves, amen? Prepare yourselves in every way, spiritually, mentally, physically. Get yourself prepared for coming hardship. You know, the Civil War, the first Civil War in this country, was preceded by a revival, uh, but America was still suffering under the weight of gross sin. And so, huge revivals broke out after the Civil War. Many people would say, well, we need a revival right now. We don't need a civil war. Well, civil war may be the vehicle God uses to bring revival. And so both the northern and southern camps experienced tremendous spiritual awakenings during the war, during the fighting. And that may be the vehicle that God uses in this country. I don't know. And I'll just say this. um, There's this term that's become coined called uh, doom. What's it called? Doom surfing? It's called doom surfing. And uh, it's this th- thing where people are addicted to doing this. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Did you see that? Oh my gosh. Can you believe that? Okay, that, that's a problem. God, didn't, God doesn't want you to spend most of your free time doing this. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Okay? That's not healthy. That's not productive. That does not give you peace of mind. And I can tell you, we all get addicted to it. I do it. Okay, I do that. I can, I can sit there for two hours, and it seems like five minutes went by, and I've been sitting on a couch for two hours staring at my phone, and the whole world's gone by, and it's just filling my head with drama, with nonsense, with things that I have zero control over. Okay, so there's this addiction to negative news. There's an addiction to sensationalized media. Right-wing media does it. It's how they get you to keep clicking. It's how they make money. It's how they continue to do what they do. Left-wing media does it. It's how they get people clicking. It's how they get, continue to make money to do what they do. Okay? Break that cycle. Break that addiction. Help me. Rebuke me. Remind me. Okay? And uh, we all need to encourage you. Tom's amen. Uh, we all need to have less time on our phones, more time looking in the faces of real human beings, engaging with real human beings. Amen? We don't need and we're not designed to take on the problems of the world. As individuals, the church corporately, yes, but you're one human being, know your limitations, 
Know the, this, the, the pool that God's put you in to swim around in, okay? <laughs> you know, know the ballpark that he's put you in. Stay in that ballpark, okay? Um, we can't take on the problems of the world. My wife will incessantly read to me, do you know this little boy got ran over by a car in Oregon? Okay, well, that means nothing to me. I'm sorry if that sounds callous, but I have zero space in my brain or in my heart emotionally or mentally to take on that information. Okay, and why you would want to do that, I have no idea. Okay, you are powerless to do anything about it. I don't know if we care if a kid was kidnapped in Texas or if, the, you know, uh, government passed some stupid law in Florida or, you know, that, that, is, that is not something I have time or energy, nor should you, to deal with. Yes, stay informed. Don't be ignorant. Don't hide your head, you know, in the sand. Don't be oblivious to what's going on. But, but, but chew up the meat, spit out the bones, prioritize your time and your energy, prioritize real relationships with real people. And this is going to be a part of what we're going to be talking about here as we're talking about getting involved in our community and our, and our counties and influencing things right here where I can go and show up and knock on my neighbor's door, who's my elected official, and talk to him, right? Um, Matt said it for years, and, and I didn't listen. I still held out hope for a solution in D.C. and paying attention to national politics, but he's been saying it for years. There is no national solution. What goes on in D.C. is a big distraction. And it's true. By and large, sadly, it is true. So take time to unplug. This is, this is, this is, we are living in dramatic times, I understand. And the, t- the temptation to want to stay glued to the latest information and the newest hype and what's going on is, is there. But you've got to unplug. You've got to take time where you shut all that stuff off. You get peace of mind, rest for your mind, where you can regain your equilibrium. We don't have a thousand and one other voices running around in your head, distracting you. You need to be able to hear the voice of God. You need to be able to hear the voice of your children. You need to be able to stop and listen to the people that are around you that matter, that are your priorities. Amen? Yes. Stop relying on the Bible phone, because when I get on my phone to look at the Bible, guess what? I got 25 messages on there, and it can be a big distraction. So put that away, pick this up, have some quietness. Amen? Okay, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Why don't we stand up and read together, and I'll pray with us. This is going to be a short sermon because I had a long introduction. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. The Bible says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, we bow our hearts before you this day, and we are thankful to be in your presence. You are the great creator. And God, we confess that we fall short. And indeed, you see and know our hearts, God, and that we are sinful people and a sinful nation laden with iniquities. And sin is so, so uh, around us in the air we breathe, Father, in this culture. And I pray that you would indeed purify our hearts, God. Help us to be humble, to walk in humility, to be clothed in humility, resting in your mercy, your righteousness, your goodness. And may you give us the strength to walk uprightly before you. And Father, I pray this morning as we, we look at this idea of biblical love and biblical faith, that you would drive fear from our hearts. Anybody here who's bound by fear, anxiousness, worry, God, I pray that we would have a renewed trust in you. That would allay all of our fears and give us confidence, courage, and boldness, Father, to do what we ought to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Scripture says here, perfect love casts out fear. Amen? Perfect love casts out fear. So we want to talk about what is love. First of all, what is love? And how does it cast out fear? How does it work as an antidote to fear? And next we're going to look at faith and how faith works with love as the central theme of the New Testament and of all of Scripture and how these things collect together conjunctively Drive fear from our hearts. Amen. And embolden us to do our duty as Christian men and women. So love is, love is not an emotion, right? Love is not just merely a feeling. Love is not just being nice. We live in a world where there is a whole lot of talking about love in a wrong kind of way. And so as Christians, love is not something that is tantamount or synonymous with us just being kind and sweet and gentle all the time. That's not what biblical love is. Many pastors hide behind this faulty notion of biblical love to justify their cowardice, to justify their failure to stand up and to speak hard biblical truths as we are commanded as Christians and as Christian leaders are supposed to do, following the footsteps of Jesus, right? The most outspoken, controversial, confrontational man who walked the earth, right? If we were going to follow in his footsteps, indeed we need love, but it is not a, a, a neutered, false idea of love that says I'm going to hide and be nice and be sweet and kind all the time. That is not love. Love is not just an emotion or a feeling. Well, I just love you and I just feel good about you, but I don't actually do anything to help you. No, love is action and love is a choice. Love is simply this. It's a deep care and concern for the well-being of others. That's how I define love. It's a deep care and concern for the well-being of others. It is putting others first. It is making the choice, choosing, whether you feel it or not, Choosing to take substantive action to put other people first. And this is why Jesus said the whole law of God is fulfilled in this, that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourself. Two great commandments upon which the whole law of God hangs is grounded and rooted in this notion of biblical love. It is the foundation of all Christian ethics. The simple notion that I'm not to be self-centered. Man's natural tendency, man's natural uh, proclivities are to be selfish, self-focused, self-centered. And the root of all sin, the root of all evil perpetrated in the world is me thinking I'm more important and I'm better than other people. Me being selfish. And the antidote to that is love. Biblical love. The love that Jesus displayed on the cross that says, I will lay down my life for others. I don't exist to serve my, my self-interests. I exist to serve others. And if we all thought that way, if we all operated that way, think of how different our marriages would be, our homes would be, our communities would be, our nation would be. If we all stopped and said, I'm going to put other people first. I'm going to rebuke selfishness and the tendencies for selfishness in my own heart and put other people first. This is the foundation of our economic life. It's the foundation of our political life. It must be the ethics that drive our political involvement and engagement and our civic duties. Our homes, our hearts, our attitudes must be grounded in biblical love. Amen. First Peter, flip over your Bibles just a few pages. First Peter, listen to what Peter says. Chapter number four of First Peter, verse seven, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. How many of you feel that way right now? <laughs> but that's the first century, so a little jab at my premillennial brothers. This, Paul said that in the first century. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, 
have fervent love one for another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And so I would ask you today, can it be said of you that you have a fervent love for other people? Do people that know you, that hang out with you, that spend time with you, would they say, this is a man, this is a woman that has a fervent love for other people? Whose life is characterized, whose choices and character is shaped by, whose attitude and dispositions are shaped by a deep, abiding, self-sacrificial attitude. That says, I exist to serve others. I exist to help others. I'm here to serve, to lay my life down, to protect. Is that the character that defines you? Because that is the character that defines Christianity. And it must be what we strive for. Amen? Look inside your heart and ask yourself if you're more American than Christian. If you're more consumer than servant. And if you're more about me, myself, and I than you are about God, family, country. God made us to serve. Amen? And that is how we experience the fullness of God's power and strength in our life. The fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace. And so that kind of love drives fear from your heart. Because when you're focused on yourself, more often than not, fear and anxiety is produced. I'm not going to get the things I need. I'm not going to have the... What if I lose that one? My comforts, my pleasures, my luxuries. I was wronged. I'm offended. Get off yourself. You know, I learned to start street preaching. I was the last person. I've said this. You've heard this probably many times. I was the last person you'd ever have expected to be a public speaker. Because I was terrified to speak publicly. Even to just get called on to pray at church, man, I would get the mumbles, the shakes, red-faced, horrified. Zeke, you know what I'm talking about? Ever experienced that? Yeah. And that's how I was. Terrified. If somebody, people even looked at me. And if I had to speak, I could be goofy. I could crack jokes and be a clown and make funny comments from the back and make fun of people. But you asked me to say something serious, I was petrified. And it was, I started street preaching at an abortion clinic. Was brought, went out to an abortion clinic with some friends of mine shortly after I was a Christian, and I was out at the, you know, on the sidewalk, and there's the parking lot, and women sitting in their cars, men sitting in their cars. You see women going into the clinics, women sitting there, and they're debating with their husbands, their, their boyfriends, whatever. And I just would lift up my voice and start talking to them, start preaching to them. Wasn't a preacher, had no aspirations to become a preacher. I just wanted to help these people. And so I just started saying things. First time I ever street preached out in the streets is I went to a, a a concert in New Orleans called the Voodoo Festival. Big, con- big concert. It's kind of like Summer Fest up here. And thousands of people and all these young people. And I had this big stack of tracks. And I was like, man, i got to go reach these young people. They're lost. They're confused. They're being lied to, man. The media's filling their heads with garbage. Listen to all this perverted music that they've grown up on, man. Broken families. These kids are messed up. I'm going to go reach them. I'm going to go bring the gospel to them. And, man, I was out there passing out tracks, having conversations, doing it. And then all of a sudden, the parking lot filled up. And they moved everybody to a parking lot that was down the road from the venue, but it was on the same side of the street as the venue, so now people aren't coming across the street where I'm at. They're just walking into the venue. So now i got this big stack of tracks, and there's hundreds of people walking past me 30, 40 feet away on the property of this venue that I can't walk onto. And I'm just like, oh, man, look at these people. And I'm just looking at all these young people, just lost, broken, spiritually dead. And I just had this heart to reach them. God, need to reach these people. Help me to do something. And it just burned up inside of me, and I just started preaching. Just started saying, listen to me. Jesus Christ is alive. You need to understand you're being lied to. You know, and I, I don't know. I probably was not very eloquent. Probably didn't, you know, you know. But, you know, I wasn't worried about me. If I had been thinking about myself, oh, my gosh, is my hair all right? Is my, my groom properly? Do I spill something on my shirt? Am I eloquent? Do I have the, did I quote that Bible verse properly? 
I never, never would have opened my mouth. I've been too fixated on what? Fear. Fear would have gripped my heart. Oh my gosh, I'm not adequate to the task. I can't do this. Oh my goodness, me, myself, and I. But guess what? I wasn't thinking about me. I wasn't fixated on myself. I was thinking about the needs, the desperate needs of others. And it drove me to do things beyond what I thought I was capable of doing. And that's true for every one of you here. Gifts and talents and strengths that lie within you to do great things for God. Lie within you if you would get your mind off yourself, overcome fear, and let this kind of perfect love that John talks about consume your heart. And say, God, this world is broken. Use me. Use me. I'm an imperfect vessel. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say stupid things. But God, use me. Use me. Give me boldness. Give me courage to make a difference in the lives of others. Amen? And he'll do it. Amen? So perfect love drives out, casts out fear. Amen? And so in a time that we are living in, this present time, where there is much concern, much anxiety, keep yourself grounded in the love of God. Keep yourself grounded in the love of God. Amen? Don't get consumed on yourself and staring in the mirror. And definitely don't be a time where you get consumed with distraction and entertainment and fun and games and nonsense. This isn't a time for distraction and games and fun and nonsense. This is a time to get yourself prepared and serve God with the fullest capacities that he's given you. And this is most important in our homes. Amen. Fathers, you set the example and you set the tone in your home. Is the tone and the spirit and the attitude in your house one of godly, biblical, Christ-like love? Do you set that tone in your home? Do do your children and does your wife see you as a servant in your home? One who is quick to sacrifice for others rather than one who is quick to demand his own wants all the time. I know a lot of dads, Christian dads, who talk big and are complete jerks at home. Selfish, domineering. And this is why so many young Christian children grow up and depart from the faith. They're not departing from a faith they ever personally had because it was never there in their home. They're just living out what they saw, the hypocrisy in the home. So fathers, you must set this tone in your home. Christ-like, godly, biblical love must be evident in the air, the aroma of your house. Amen. You must be an example of sacrifice as Christ was an example of sacrifice. Not weakness, not Ned Flanders, you know, not, you know, uh, Joel Osteen. Be a man, have backbone, be the leader of your home, but lead like Christ, who served. Amen? Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Be quick to admit your faults. When you make a mistake, be quick to repent. But be a good leader, amen? Be a godly leader. Secondly, faith. Love and faith work together as a foundation for our salvation, our sanctification, and our relationship with the Lord, amen? Scripture says the just shall live by faith. Indeed, we are justified freely by faith. Peter says we are kept By the power of God through faith. Faith is this incredible theme of Scripture. It's this incredible, dynamic, powerful thing that is the basis of our salvation. We are justified by faith alone. Amen? 
Well, what is faith? Where is your faith? How is your faith? Is your faith strong right now or is it weak? We can all experience a weakening of our faith. We, can, we all have times where we need our, strength, our, our faith strengthened. Amen? And so what is faith? There is much confusion on this. I ask people all the time, and of course the famous verse everybody quotes is, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Have everybody quote that too? Good verse of scripture, but if you ask people, what does that mean? This is true of many people that memorize Bible verses, but they don't really know what they're memorizing. They don't really analyze and break the text down to find the terms and think it through carefully and thoughtfully. They're not students of Scripture. It's easy to memorize Bible verses and not know what in the world they actually mean or how they apply to your life. Don't just memorize the Bible. Understand the Bible. Study the Bible. Be a student of Scripture. It's why I teach my kids not just to memorize Bible verses. It's why I don't necessarily always quote the verse of a Bible. Because the chapters and verse weren't even in the original scriptures. I think it's better to not think about just, well, this individual verse, because then you're prone to pull that verse out of its context. And just grab a verse of scripture. I memorized chapter 4, verse 18. Okay, that's good, but what's verse 17 say? What's verse 16 say? What comes before it? What comes after In fact, what is the whole theme of the book? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What are they addressing? Those are the things you should be thinking about as you're, before you just pull a verse out of scripture. If you're going to use a verse, understand the context of that verse. The logical flow of where it falls in the book. Anyway, um, what is faith? What is faith? Misconceptions on faith abound just as much and just as prevalent as as misconceptions on what love is, right? People have these gross misconceptions of what biblical love is that needs to be defined properly. The same is true of biblical faith. Two big misconceptions about faith. What are some that may come to your mind? If you think of misconceptions people have about faith, what are some things that people have a faulty notion of what faith is? Anything come immediately to your mind? That there doesn't need to be any evidence. That doesn't need to be any evidence. Sure. Yeah, that it's blind, right? Prosperity. Prosperity. Yeah, that faith leads to uh, wealth, health, and prosperity. Uh, that, that faith is some magic genie. You just rub the bottle, rub the Bible, and miracles fall from heaven, blessings fall from heaven, it'll be rich, and sickness will go away. Yeah, that, that nonsense is definitely not biblical faith. But let's define it. Faith is not blind, right? Common f- criticism of People, uh, critics of Scripture, is that you just have a blind faith, right? Have you heard that? I, I can't just have a blind faith. I have to believe in reason. I need evidence. I need things that I can, they're tangible. I just can't believe things blindly. In, in, in your faith, Christianity, you just have blind belief. I can't do that. Well, that's not, that's not biblical. No Christian, right? Thoughtful Christian would call somebody to a blind faith. The Bible doesn't call us to a blind faith. So faith is not blind, and nor is it merely belief. Right? Faith is not just, well, I believe. Right? You meet people who say, oh, I believe in God. And then, then they live like absolute dogs. Right? Live like absolute, in absolute wickedness. Well, do you really believe in God? I mean, do you really believe in God? Because faith is not just mere belief. So let's give a definition here. I think of faith as something that is rational. It entails more than just belief. It entails commitment and devotion. So it's reasonable and rational. And it is also involves commitment and devotion. Commitment and devotion. A lot of scriptures we could look at in this, but for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna, to uh, move quickly through this. And lastly, it's, it involves trust. Trust. A deep and abiding trust. So I think of faith, and we can flip over to Hebrews 11, by the way, because we're going to look at this passage of scripture, which is sort of the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, I would define faith, and I teach my kids, faith is a rational commitment and trust 
in Almighty God and his providence and sovereignty over my life. A rational trust and commitment in Almighty God, in his providence and his sovereignty over my life. He's God. He created all things. He is all-powerful. I don't believe that blindly. I don't believe that irrationally. And so it's something that I must commit myself to intellectually and with the fullness of my heart, I must commit myself to with full devotion and trust. And that's the power and the engine of saving and sanctifying faith. Amen. That's how it is able to ground us. Ground us in the reality of God and give us comfort and strength through the storms of life, right? Through the trials and tribulations. And that is how it connects our hearts to God. Amen. So Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. And then it goes on, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Sarah, and all these it goes on, continuing on, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac and of Jacob and Joseph, the faith of Moses. He goes on and gives these great accounts. And so in these, in these instances he's given, there is a component of the unseen. Right? God is not visible before us. God remains unseen. God's handiwork, his, the things that he is doing in your life and in our world right now remain largely unseen. We don't see a physical hand come down from heaven and grab you out of your chair. But that doesn't mean that it's blind or irrational. Right? It doesn't mean it's not grounded in evidence, in knowledge, in an experience. Right? For example, let me give you just a simple example. I can say that I, uh, you know, if I were out, you know, working or something and somebody said, you know, uh, challenged, you know, the sanity of my wife and said, I think maybe your wife is crazy and she might be home abusing the children. And so then I would have to say, well, is there any merit to that claim? And if I said, no, I think my wife is actually quite sane and she's home taking good care of the children. And they said, well, prove it to me. Prove it. Give me some evidence. I want concrete, tangible, empirical evidence right now. Right? Like the, like the atheists do. Give me some concrete, tangible, empirical evidence of God right now. Otherwise, I'm going to walk away being an atheist. Right? Which is just a nonsense. Right? But that's, that's, you know. So you'd say, well, I, can, uh, I don't have tangible, empirical proof that I can show you right now because I'm not there. <laughs> She's home a long way from me. I'm here working. Okay? So I can't give you empirical proof that she's doing that right now. But does that mean that it's a blind... Uh, commitment or belief that I have that's not grounded in evidence? No, of course not. Because I can say, well, I know my wife, and I come home every day from work, and she has been taking good care of the children. I know her character. I've seen her character. We have a relationship. And I know how she treats our children. So, though I can't prove it in that very moment, I rely upon something that is unseen. I can't see it. I'm trusting in her. I have faith in her, right? There is a faith component, an unseen component, but that faith is not blind. It would be absurd to say that's a blind, irrational faith, unless, of course, you know, she was actually abusing the kids and I was just turning a blind eye to it. And, no, I didn't see that. Um, so that's, that's an example of having faith in something that you cannot see or prove in the given moment, 
but that is quite grounded reasonably and rationally in evidence, in knowledge, in experience. Does that make sense? And so this is the biblical idea of faith. We should never accept this notion that faith is blind. You hear this. This is in philosophy textbooks. This is taught in college campuses. This is reiterated in a thousand and one places in popular culture. And many Christians believe it. Faith, I have faith, and therefore I'm not required, or nor should I be expected to give any sort of evidence for what I believe. And that's not true. We do not have a blind faith. We have a faith that's grounded in experience, in evidence, and in knowledge. Amen? Yet, of course, there is the unseen component to it. right? And so there is a trust component. There is a devotion. So it's not just mere belief either. Faith is not just mere belief. The Bible says the devils believe, and they even tremble, right? But does that faith save them? Does that belief save them? Does that knowledge save them? No. Our belief must go beyond mere believing, more mere intellectual assent to a particular thing. It must move into what is saving faith is more than just belief. It's commitment, devotion, and trust. Understand that? So when you say I have faith in God, that entails not just a rational component, but it also entails this devotion and this commitment and this trust in God. That kind of faith moves mountains. Amen? That kind of faith is what Paul, or rather, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, says here, by faith, verse 30 of Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, through this faith I'm talking about, this powerful concept that we must embrace in our lives, right? This faith, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised their life again. Amen? He subdued whole kingdoms through faith. Valiant in battle through faith. Stop the mouths of lions through faith. Work righteousness through faith. Where is your faith? What mountains lay before you that God is wanting to, you to stand up and overcome? Amen? Do not fear. Do not be afraid of the things you see in front of you, the obstacles and barriers you see in front of you right now, the evil that spreads across this nation. We have the power and the Spirit of God in us. Understand that. To overcome. To move mountains to quench the violence of fire, to escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness to be made strong. Amen? And so where is your faith? Where is your strength? Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Amen? But they overcame through their faith. Amen? And so will we. Amen? Whatever is on the horizon, whatever is coming our way, understand, so will we. So will we. Amen? Keep your heart grounded in the love of God. Keep your heart grounded in faith in God. Amen? And the battles that we are yet to face, the battles that are coming our way, we will be prepared, we will be strong and able to face them by His strength. Amen? Let's pray.